Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1. I've been asked to do a family conference for one of our URC churches in Idaho this summer, and they asked me to, I guess, speak on or bring some encouragement about the situation of our culture. And so in thinking about that conference, I've decided to look at these opening chapters of Daniel, and in beginning to study there, I'm so struck by the encouragement it is that I thought I would also try to sneak in sermons on these opening few chapters of Daniel in these weeks ahead, and I hope that will be an encouragement to us. So Daniel chapter 1, I'd like to look at this chapter this morning, marvelous story here during the days when God's people have been carried off captive to Babylon, or at least Daniel and his friends are, and uh, the Lord remains sovereign. It's, uh, it's quite a, uh, a wonder, this whole book of God's sovereignty in very difficult days, and therefore very applicable for us today. Daniel 1 at verse 1, God's word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name, Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Misael, Meshach, And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them for ten days. 
And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. God's word. Let's ask for his help. Our Father in heaven, our gracious God, your word is our strength. It is our life. It gives us wisdom to live here upon earth until we see your face. You were the wisdom of Daniel and his companions the wisdom of your people through the ages. We pray you direct our hearts into your truth, into your comforts, into the challenges of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray for your spirit. Amen. Well, people of God, the, the question of the hour apparently is how do you identify? question which causes us to cringe for good reason. But as it turns out, actually not a very modern question at all, but the question that's been asked throughout the ages. question that we'll see in the Gospel of John tonight was asked by John the Baptist when the religious leaders sent a delegation to investigate him. Who are you? question Jesus asked of his disciples about himself. Who do you say that I am? Question Joshua asked of the man with the sword as Joshua surveyed Jericho. And the man came at him and he said, are you for them or for us? Who are you? The question of identity is actually very important. And we could pray that that in these days of, of such a preposterous question or a question being asked so preposterously, how do you identify that the Lord might awaken our culture to the reality that we must identify we, we must know who we are. We, we must state it. We must live it. The question of identity is vital. But how do I identify? Is your identity determined by ethnicity? By your, your ethnic heritage or by your skin color? Is your identity simply a matter of relationships? You're a father, a son, a mother, a sister... You identify in terms of of who you're related to? Is our identity our clothes? How we dress? Do we define our identity in terms of our successes? Let me tell you about my business and what I've accomplished. Do we identify ourselves in terms of our failures? You don't want to know who I am. I've done horrible things. The Bible tells us that our identity was established right here. At the baptismal font, when we were baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and God said, I give you a new name, you are mine. 
Our identity is that we're united to Jesus Christ. We are one with him, the Lord of the universe, the one who gave us life for us. We are God's children. We are forgiven. We are destined for glory. We are more than conquerors through who loved us. This is our identity. But it's under attack. Romans 14 says that none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. But can that be maintained? We have concerns, don't we, for ourselves, for the future of the church, and for the succeeding generations. God has given to his people a great encouragement in this book of Daniel. I was, as I began to study in Daniel, reading in John Calvin's commentary, John Calvin, our great Reformed theologian, a great gift to the church. But he dedicates his lectures on Daniel to the Christians in France. And Calvin came from France, and he had left France. In fact, he had to flee. And he begins his preface by saying, I I don't regret not living in France. I wouldn't want to live in a place where the gospel and the truth is banished. But I do hope by my being absent all these decades that, that my work will have benefit for you. And then he says, a most excellent opportunity has been providentially afforded me for in publishing these lectures on Daniel... I have the very best occasion of showing you, beloved brethren, in this mirror how God proves the faith of his people in these days by various trials. Remember, the French were not without trials and without persecutions, and St. Bartholomew's day is coming. How Calvin writes, and how with wonderful wisdom he has taken care to strengthen their minds by ancient examples that they should never be weakened by the concussion of the severest storms and tempests, or at least if they should totter at all, they should never finally fall. For although the servants of God are required to run in a course impeded by many obstacles, yet whoever diligently reads this book of Daniel will find in it whatever is needed by a voluntary and active runner to guide him from the starting post to the goal. And I was struck to think that 500 years ago, saints being persecuted in the days of the Reformation might have found so much encouragement in this book in Daniel to see that God gave courage to stand, to see that God's kingdom eclipses the kingdom of Babylon. And what a book for us in this day and age to take heart and to be confident that our Lord rules and all the more Jesus Christ having come. Let's look at how the Lord protects the identity of his servants to the honor of his name. Let's look first at the danger that God ordains, and then at the commitment that God maintains or protects, and then thirdly at the glory that God reveals. Well, Daniel, writing this book, tells us about the situation. It is the time in which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has come from a long distance to besiege the holy city of Jerusalem and to capture it. He even takes articles from the temple of God and brings them back to Babylon to the house of his God. Where is God? If if he doesn't defend his own temple, where is God? If he doesn't care about his own church. But it's not that God has lost power. It's that what God promised or threatened has come true. 
Deuteronomy 28, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies. Modern translation, because you did not care to identify as my people, therefore you be identified as slaves of your enemies. And yet, even in this judgment, God's eyes upon his people. Seems like God has cast his people off, yet we see in the book of Daniel that the Lord is near his people. Now, it may seem perplexing to us, right, that, that Daniel gets carried away. Maybe you know in terms of the, the Babylonian captivity and, and uh, defeat of Jerusalem that this came in stages, right? You, you, it began in 605 B.C., somewhere carried off captive, and then another thing in 597 B.C., and then finally the temple destroyed in 586 or 87 B.C. And so there are these three stages. And Daniel appears to be carried off in the first stage, and we might say, why not the wicked men who provoke God's anger? Why aren't they carried off to captive? But a godly young man, why should he be plucked from his home? And yet, though God's judgments are incomprehensible, Daniel makes clear that this is not outside of the Lord's control. This isn't, this isn't Nebuchadnezzar and all of his strength and fury and, and, and his military prowess. But verse 2, it's the Lord that gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It's the Lord who did it, not Nebuchadnezzar defeating God. How far is God willing to go to refine his people and to glorify his own name? How far is God willing to go to save his elect and to magnify his name on earth? He's willing to go so far as to allow his own temple to be defiled. And there's a lesson for us, isn't there? As we grieve the decline of a country that that once openly acknowledged the Lord. When we look at at the the cultural heritage of the Western world being forgotten. I don't know if you watched any of the coronation of of King Charles, but but the oaths that he took and the the ceremonies that went on were were absolutely startling, right? In a culture that, that has rejected the Lord and his word, the gift, first gift given to the king is a Bible. With the word, something to the effect, this is the most important thing, the most important gift on earth or something. And the king took an oath to maintain in the UK the reformed Protestant religion. Startling. It reminds you of all that's been thrown away. But if Israel was not too sacred for God to judge it, in order to save his elect and to honor his holiness, then no country is. And yet, in all of it, verse 2, it's the Lord who's at work. And he will not forsake his people, though he humble them. Yet for all who cast off their identity and say, my baptism doesn't matter, that name I don't care about, I forget about that name, then, then fear the judgment of God. But for all those in times of trial who say, Lord, my only hope is this new identity that I'm united to Christ, then be confident. God will not forget you. Nebuchadnezzar takes the best of the young men, sons of nobles and the kings. He takes princes, those without blemish and those who are intellectually gifted and good students. And he takes them to train them up for his service. What's his goal? Well, his goal 
is to make them serviceable to his kingdom, and his method is to erase from them their identity, to turn them into Babylonians, to make them sympathetic to the Babylonian outlook on life. And if he can turn these sons of the princes of Judah into the pawns of Babylon, then, of course, he can influence all the people of Judah, lead the whole nation into a willing subjection to Nebuchadnezzar. And so he enrolls them in this Babylonian re-education program. They need this, this sensitivity training to sympathize with the Babylonians, to be remade with a new identity. And in all of this, of course, we're watching a kingdom conflict, right? It's Jerusalem versus Babylon. This is, this is cosmic warfare here. And Satan's at work, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. And yet nothing comes by chance. And so God gives us a window here in the book of Daniel to see God's ways. We don't get a special letter from heaven to tell us that in the year 2023 there's a a kingdom conflict and, and the Lord reigns even over President Joe Biden. We don't get that kind of letter, but we get this letter so we can interpret the times in which we live. And in all of this, the church remains the object of God's peculiar care. All God's promises have been sealed to us by the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been committed to the care of the good shepherd who gave us life for us. We have the confidence that our Christ sits upon the throne. And so the present dangers we're in are not something that caught God off guard. The the present loss of a a Christian-type culture in the Western world is not something that, 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 that caught God by surprise or that he can't stop. He reigns. Just like he did here. When his people were disobedient, he gave them into the hands of their enemies. God reigns. And he will not abandon his work of his church. John Calvin told the French believers, let me read it, a quote. But if you must contend still longer, by whatever attack the madness of the impious bursts forth, remember that your course has been defined by a heavenly master of the contest, whose laws you must obey more cheerfully, since he will supply you with strength unto the end. What a line that your course, though you face persecution, your course has been defined by a heavenly master of the contest. And so with ours. Where we sit this morning, the culture in which we live, has been defined by our Heavenly Master. And he has mapped out the war in which we are participants. So we see the danger that God has ordained. But then look secondly at the commitment that God sustains as he seeks to preserve the identity of his children. Now this is a severe temptation for Daniel and his, and his friends. Imagine being ripped from your home and, and taken captive by a hostile people to a foreign land, having lost everything as it were, and, and you're, you're facing here the world's superpower, Babylon, and you're intimidated, and, and you don't want to make anyone angry. And the king of Babylon is going to work now with a, a very specific program to, to make you pliable and to fit you into his mold. See a lot of similarities to the way Satan works today. Look at what King Nebuchadnezzar does here. We could describe it as a program of four R's, relocation, re-education, re-motivation, 
and re-identification. First of all, it's relocation. They're taken from their homes to Babylon. They're isolated from family and church, Christian friends, Christian accountability. They're separated from the fires of godliness. Sometimes we take for granted our worship services and our Christian community. And we think, you know, if I didn't have this, I'd still be fine. I'd still stand. We have no idea how many good things God is bringing us through worship services and through the Christian family and through the Christian church. We are to value these bonds, live close to the people of God. Nebuchadnezzar seeks to isolate them through relocation. But then notice the re-education program in verse 4. They're to be taught the language and literature of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And there's a power in that, isn't there, to change someone's language? Remember where, where we came from in the Chicago area, that the history there, in terms of some of the churches, had been related to the Dutch language. Because the immigrants, some of them had a hard time switching from Dutch worship to English worship. In fact, there was some, I think, even some disputing about that. It's very hard if you're trained in, in knowing that God speaks Dutch, right? And in, in the language of, uh, of, of the piety of the home, it's in Dutch. To, it's hard sometimes to switch over to another language. And switching to another language can make you feel less holy or something. But you know, it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? To begin to speak as a Babylonian is to form new alliances and new ways of thinking. And yet it's not just about a foreign language in that sense. Just think about our culture. I called up one of our legislators this week and spoke to a staff who and I expressed concern about a piece of legislation having to do with abortion and trans surgery on children. Her response was, oh, you want to talk about gender-affirming care. Gender-affirming care. That's a language, isn't it? It's right up there with abortion being called women's reproductive rights. That's a language of a different culture, isn't it? That's a language of a different kingdom. And we have to be careful not to speak it. In the church, too, we sometimes adopt language of the world. I just believe as if whatever I feel must be right. That's the language of Babylon. What the language of phobia for anybody who resists any kind of sin, they're, they're phobic, intolerant, hateful. This is all a vocabulary and a language that we should be aware of. Nebuchadnezzar's goal is to convert these young men into Babylonians and having them read the literature also. I mean, who would oppose, of course, with some foreign literature? And yet, what's the goal but to indoctrinate them, to make them adopt the, the Babylonian worldview? It's good for us to remember that, and this is for boys and girls and for parents, when we talk about TV shows or movies or books or podcasts or songs, the question is not simply, does it have a bad word? 
The question is, what is the worldview? What does it think the purpose of life is? What does it think the purpose of money is? What does it think the place of recreation is? What is the view on life? Is it that this is all there is? Enjoy it all you can? Live for yourself? Gratify your flesh? You see, those are principles and commitments that are aligned with Babylon. But then there's the re-motivation. The re-motivation. Daniel and his friends, as well as the other young men that have been taken, are not treated like criminals and put in prison cells on a remote island. They are treated like royalty. They are wined and dined. The, the king gives to them the same thing he eats, the same wine he drinks. Well, that's powerful, isn't it? To enjoy these pleasures of Babylon, to give up the old motivations of a holy life to God, to, to embrace the motivation of, of sensual gratification, to begin to love the Babylonian way of life. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar knows that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And he's inviting them to embrace the life of luxury or the life of pride, feeling that they're pretty important, we're part of the court, and therefore to compromise their commitments. As you look at the world today, it's, it's quite obvious that Satan has, has had great success in using this tactic in America, right? I mean... As, as the wealth piles up and, and the luxuries pile up, sometimes we're just, we're just trying to figure out one better thing after another better thing. A better house, a better car, better tasting food, better beverages, more, more, me, me, fill, fill. Is that what life is about? As long as we can have greater comforts and greater luxuries, we're willing to compromise. Nebuchadnezzar's clever, and Satan is more clever. It's easy to fall in love with this world. It's easy to fall in love with Babylon. It feels so good. It tastes so good. But then there's the re-identification. New names for these men. Again, it could be posed to them as being quite innocent. You know, we don't want people to laugh at you. It's hard for them to pronounce your Israelite names. We'll just give you a name that's common in Babylon. Except Daniel's name means God is my judge. Daniel's new name, Belteshazzar, means keeper of the hidden treasures of Baal. Or Azariah, Jehovah has helped me, renamed Abednego, servant of Nebo. Or Misael, who is like God, becoming possibly who is like Venus. Embedded in their own names, their old names were, were identifications in terms of the God they served. And now the new names apparently suggest that they are the servants of a different God. It's a new identity. And as these new names are spoken day after day after day, you are servant of Nebo. You are servant of Baal. What a confusion for a young person to hear over and over and over now in the name being called. It's a brainwashing technique, isn't it? 
Nebuchadnezzar's plan is well formulated. But behind him stands Satan, and so we should beware even today that Satan is at work to isolate and to indoctrinate and to incorporate us in the ways of the world. That's not alarmist theology. That's the reality. And if we're not aware of that, if we're not on edge about that, then we've already been lulled to sleep. We're living in a very dangerous place. Look at the church in our land. Look at the churches in Europe. We can't afford to let our worship decline. We're not somehow more spiritual and stronger. We don't need as much Bible study and worship as they used to need. We're so safe now. We have no natural predators. No, not hardly. We can't afford to work, to fail to work at our relationships with each other. We need one another. We need encouragement. We need accountability. We need people praying for us. We can't assume because we don't have physical violence that that Satan doesn't care about us. We're to be alert to his schemes and be asking ourselves, where am I compromised? Where has Satan invited me to speak the language of Babylon and think the thoughts of Babylon and become a Babylonian? Where am I becoming worldly? Where am I becoming worldly? No, it's, it's not just what we might think of as some big things, not believing in God, turning away. But the spirit of selfishness in our marriage is a worldly principle. Dishonoring our parents, that's a worldly principle. There's still war going on. And Satan would lead us step by step by degree, by degree, away from the Lord, but for the grace of God. And that's the thing that stands out here, the wonderful work of God. It's not that, that Daniel and his three friends are so amazing, but it's that God is. It's God is. God is protecting identity. God must win the battle. And so we read in verse 8 that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. God is at work in Daniel. He's stirring up his heart. Now, why Daniel thinks these things will defile him is not clear. Were they somehow breaking the dietary restrictions of Israel? Were they foods offered to idols? Or was it simply that Daniel realized that King Nebuchadnezzar was trying to tamper with his heart? And he said, you know what? I'm going to draw a line here. And I'm not going to be enticed. And I'm going to make it the case that in every meal I eat, I remember I'm a slave I'm in exile. I do not belong here. So he draws a line. What a wonderful way. Daniel couldn't stop the relocation or the re-identification, a new name, but Daniel would seek a way to distance himself from Babylon, to remind himself that he was the Lord's. He purposes in his heart. And we could think that this little thing of not eating the king's food is a small thing. Sometimes we, even now maybe, we picture and wonder about the future or we read history of the past and we think, you know, could I, could I stand and be burned to death? Or, or could I stand like Luther did and, 
and, and maintain my commitment at cost of my life, threat of my life. But you know, it, it really begins in the little things, doesn't it? begins in the little things that we make our commitments to the Lord and we keep our commitments to the Lord. He who is faithful in little is faithful in much. You know, even for most of the great martyrs that we know about, it wasn't that they suddenly, at the moment of possible execution, they suddenly became strong in the Lord, but it was growth. For Daniel, it begins here, it begins before this. For Martin Luther, his stand at the Diet of Worms didn't begin there, it began earlier. For Jesus Christ... His stand at the cross began much earlier. The book of Hebrews says that our Lord Jesus Christ learned obedience through the things that he suffered. It's in the little things. It's in the little things. Are there sins in my life this morning that I know God is saying, that doesn't belong there and you need to give it up, and we just go on and go on, no big deal. Those are ways of making ourselves vulnerable, aren't they, to... It's a greater attack. But if we, by God's grace, stand in the little things, then we are growing in the Lord to stand in the bigger things. doesn't matter if I pray before lunch at work. so much easier not to pray before lunch at work than nobody laughs at me. doesn't matter if I'm rude to my brother or sister in the home. It's just what brothers and sisters do. Faithful and little, faithful and much. An amazing thing that the adults of Israel couldn't muster the strength to stand in the Lord. And here are, here are some young men, tender use. And by God's grace, they're avoiding the brainwashing and standing in the Lord. And Daniel's reaching out to help his companions. What amazing grace, what amazing wonders. But then notice, third of this morning, that in all of this, God is glorifying his name in Babylon. The glory revealed. There's three things that come to mind here. First of all, God makes the case, the cause of Daniel shine forth. Read in verse 9 that God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. So here, far from home, far from the temple, there's God at work in Babylon. And not just in the heart of Daniel, but he's influencing those around Daniel. God gives Daniel an in with the, with the chief of the eunuchs here. And Daniel goes to him and says, I, you know, I don't want to eat this food anymore. And, and, and the officer says, well, I'm sorry, but I'm not willing to risk my neck for you. So you will eat the food. And then Daniel doesn't give up. He goes to the steward of the chief eunuch and says, hey, I got a plan. Why don't you test us for 10 days? We'll not eat the king's food, and you compare us to those who did eat the king's food, and we'll see who looks better if we look any worse. God's plan here for preserving the identity of his servants isn't that he'll just shield them from all troubles, but it's in the midst of the trials that he'll make them faithful. And here's a man, here's Daniel, who believes that that, that, that he's nourished, not by bread alone, but that he lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How could Daniel know that eating beans and water or whatever it was is going to come out better than all the king's food and, and the steaks? 
but he trusts God. And God would bless it. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That's what Daniel seeks to do, and that's what the Lord blesses him to do. What a revelation here, because we, we might assume, you know, if I take a stand at work, I'm going to lose my job, right? If I take a stand at work, I'm going to lose my job. If I, if I obey this government law, then my business is going to fail. Well, not if God says different. Ten days. Daniel and his friends appear healthier than the other lads. God granted sympathy to those over Daniel. He gave them favor. God worked in their hearts. John Calvin says it well. Daniel therefore gives us courage to obey God and his commands. Hence, let us learn to cast our care upon God. When worldly terror oppresses us or when men forbid us with threats to obey God's commands... Here, let us acknowledge the power of God's hand to turn the hearts of those who rage against us and to free us from all danger. And Calvin points out, God can turn your, your closest friends or relatives against you. Christians have died at the hands of loved ones. And God can turn your fiercest enemy for you. God has turned the hearts of oppressors. It's all in the hands of God. And if God wants to spare us, he will spare us. But let us trust in him. So God shines forth here by blessing Daniel's plan to be faithful to God. Secondly, the glory of the Lord is revealed here because God makes the wisdom of these men shine forth. Verse 17, as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. The Lord is lifting these men up with remarkable wisdom, and to Daniel he actually gives prophetic understanding because he's going to glorify his name in Babylon. He's going to bring prophecies about the kingdom of God. Satan's goal is to remove all influence of Judah and Judah's God from the world, even from the land of Babylon especially. But look at what God does, verse 18. Now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. So they come in not for a written examination, but for an oral exam. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all was none found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. None found like these men. Someone would have said, Daniel, you should have just compromised by eating the food. You should have just fit in. Then you might gain a place of standing, and you could influence Babylon. And it's precisely the opposite. Daniel being faithful to God is used of God in precisely the way God wants to use him. And here they are in the king's presence daily. And if that weren't enough, then verse 20, And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Now that's striking, isn't it? I mean, surely... The king spared no expense to train his own astrologers and magicians and wise men. But here, four lads from Judah, after three years of training, 
are ten times wiser than all his wise men. What an amazing thing. And why did God do this? Because he wanted to reveal himself to Babylon and to the nations as the only true God. I mean, what would this be for Nebuchadnezzar, who boasted his mighty kingdom, and, and we're the proud, we're, we're such wise people, and we do all this study of the stars, and we have an intellectual culture. And here we got four boys from Judah who are ten times smarter than my best scholars. Nebuchadnezzar, who wanted to wipe out their identity, is now coming confronted with their identity. Who are these young men? Who is their God? What a God we serve. What if at work, despite all your manager's emails and speeches about tolerance and against phobias, that everybody in the office knows that you are ten times kinder than the supervisor. You are ten times more merciful than the supervisor. You are ten times more likely to get the shirt off your back than your supervisor is. Doesn't that speak volumes to the world? The Lord wills to magnify his name. Even in the age in which we live. As God gives us grace to be faithful to him. He does it that his name might be exalted among all the nations. And Satan can try all his tricks. And the power brokers of the world can apply all their pressures to make us pliable and mold us. But as we cling to the Lord by his grace, in the end, it is the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ shining out in us that cannot be confounded. And everyone is forced to admit, if not in this life, at the coming of the Lord Jesus... Christ, your people were right. They were the righteous ones. It was they who loved. It was they who were not racist. It was they who loved their enemies. It was they who loved the children, even not their own children, and would take them into their homes. And finally, God's glory shines forth in the last verse. Verse 21, thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Seventy years later, the kingdom of Babylon is no more. Cyrus the Persian now rules. Nebuchadnezzar's long gone. But who remains? Daniel, servant of the Lord. What a book for a people in 2023 in a depraved culture who wonder why others keep winning the political battles and where things are headed and who's in control. What an encouragement. Look up to heaven. Christ at the right hand of God who was attacked and crucified but who reigns. 
who gave his life for our sins, who's coming again in glory. We have every reason for hope. If Daniel had reason for hope and courage, we have even more reason. So where, brothers and sisters, we have fallen short and we have compromised, let us pray for grace to see that, to turn from it. Where we're overcome with cowardice and we tremble in fear, let us confess that before God and say, that's not, that's not worthy of one of your servants who knows that Christ reigns. And let's say, Lord, what, what's your will for us? What's your purpose? And as God gives us his commands and says, walk in this way, keep yourself unspotted from the world, and let's do that. And let's do that not as those simply who, who are trying to survive, but let us do that with the recognition that the kingdom of Christ is glorious and he will have the nations for his inheritance. This is our Father's world. This is the world of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in every age, he's brought his people through. In every age. Which is why there's still a church today. May God lift up our hearts. May we give thanks for such a great king as the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we proudly identify, I belong to him. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for a breath of fresh air in a humid and barren and choking climate. We pray, God, that you will give us fresh courage through our Lord Jesus Christ. You give us fresh hope that you will save us from the despair that Satan wishes for us. Save us from the new identity he wishes to hoist upon us. Pray that on this Lord's Day especially, we be reminded of to whom we belong, and that we'd be glad to identify as the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. May our Savior be magnified, and may he uphold his saints throughout all the world for his glory. Amen.